The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you now to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We're nearing the end of this series that I believe we'll have two more sermons from in the coming weeks. When I played junior high football, I had a coach who I would say was obsessed with weight training. In fact, we had, we had a weight room in our junior high school that rivaled the high school's weight room fully equipped with all the latest in weight room equipment. And this coach would require the football team to work out three days a week, during the football season, during the off season, and even encourage us to come and lift weights over the summer break. And this coach would give us awards, uh, divide up into different categories and different competitions. He even had t-shirts made so that you had a different colored t-shirt based upon what weight class uh, you had earned by your, your bench press weight. Well, this particular coach surely had his shortcomings, but one thing was very certain. He wanted his players to be strong and to be prepared and fit for a battle on the football field. The Lord our God wants us to be strong. And though he doesn't care much about how much we can bench press, he does want us to be strong in him, readiness for battle. I read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, yours is the might, the power, and the glory, and you have made those of us who are weak strong through the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for wisdom and insight and power as we look into your word. Be with us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a fairly new Christian as a teenager, I had uh, Christian friends introduce me to some, very, some Christian novels written by Frank Peretti. Many of you may be familiar with Frank Peretti. He's a, a world-renowned novelist, having sold millions of 
copies of his books, and he's most known for his fictional novels, which expand with great imagination, exploring the unseen world of supernatural forces. Two of his most popular books are This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. And the plot of these stories are just normal, everyday people finding themselves at odds in opposition to corrupt governments, corrupt organizations and educational institutions. And what makes the story so compelling is the scene he gives you behind, behind the scene is this drama of angels and demons, really behind all the motives and key action of the story. And uh, the real actors are the supernatural powers. They're guiding and shaping uh, the intentions and actions of fallen human beings. Now, Peretti's a very engaging author, uh, very entertaining, and I don't necessarily have a problem with imaginative stories and of the fictional kind. However, his books do tend to pose a problem for those who, for those who would feed their own curiosity and develop their own obsession, their tendency to be overly consumed with the supernatural. And I've known Christians who have even taken that view of things and reading into every problem that they encounter as the work of demons, the work of spiritual forces against them, whether it's the slighted comment of someone at work or even a flat tire preventing one from getting somewhere on time. There's a lot we don't know about the unseen world of spiritual forces. And, and the Apostle Paul only pulls back the veil a little bit to make us aware, to make us ready, to engage us to be vigilant in a very real spiritual battle. I believe in this text that Paul wants us to heighten our awareness of the spiritual reality of the unseen, to equip us for the battle. I believe that Scripture wants us to, let, to be concerned less with the ins and the outs of demonology, these matters of less importance, and rather for us to focus more on knowing our conquering king and learning how to abide in him. Tonight from this text, I hope to address what it means to be strong in the Lord. And secondly, I want to cover who is Satan and what are these spiritual forces of evil to which Paul refers. And then thirdly, to cover how do we contend against this great foe, and how do we take a stand for the honor and glory of God? Well, first, we must address what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? A very brief browsing of the internet today will have you come across various ads. Ads promoting weight training programs, various diet supplements with pictures of men and women with, with massive muscles, a, a, a great physique encouraging you to become like such a strong man or fit woman. Well, I don't believe that, that that's what Paul refers to when he wants us to be strong. He clarifies this by saying that we are strong in the strength of God's 
might. And in fact, I believe that Paul here is drawing upon various images from the Old Testament that help illustrate what it means to be strong in the Lord. We find in the book of Joshua that immediately after the death of Moses, God comes to Joshua and exhorts him to be strong and courageous. Now, Joshua had already demonstrated a lot of strength and courage as a spy for Israel and as a commander and general of Israel's army. And yet, without Moses as the leader, Joshua was now being tested. Joshua is confronted by the true commander of the Lord's army. The angel of the Lord appears, and Joshua passes the test when he kneels when he yields his leadership to the great general himself. And only then is Joshua given the battle plan for Israel's charge against Jericho. Now, it's interesting, when you look at that battle plan, Joshua was instructed not to assault the fortress, not to lay siege to the fortress, but to march around it seven days with the blowing of trumpets and being led in procession by the priest in the Ark of the Covenant. This battle plan likely sounded foolish. And Joshua and his men were very likely mocked by their enemies looking over their impenetrable walls until that seventh day. And that seventh journey around. And the blowing of the final trumpet and the shout of the soldiers resulted in the collapsing of those great invincible walls. Joshua was also tested when ordered to have all of his fighting men circumcised inside enemy territory, posing his army at risk and vulnerable to their enemies. Gideon showed himself strong in the Lord when he obeyed God's command to reduce the size of his army to a mere 300 men to pursue a mighty horde many, many times their size and strength. The Lord prevailed. I believe that being strong in the Lord means that we trust God even when we don't understand and cannot see how God will possibly work things out for our good and his glory. To be strong in the Lord means to obey God's commands even when they run counter to every cultural conviction. We live in a culture that emphasizes tolerance to celebrate same-sex attraction and marriage. We live in a culture that prizes and values cohabitation and living together before the covenant of marriage. We have many messages in our society that repeatedly tell us that we deserve all that we desire and we can afford anything as long as we can meet the monthly payment. God's Word calls us to trust and obey, to resist the conflicting voices we hear in our ears. To be strong in the Lord may also mean overcoming the despairing voices we hear from within our own soul. 
David when he was exhausted and emotionally spent on the run from King Saul was found by his good friend Jonathan. And it says in the text that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. When Saul was beyond all persuasion, Jonathan helped his friend renew his grip on the Lord and fight a new day. And then on a later occasion, when Jonathan was not available, when David was in dire straits, after a raiding band had sacked their town and carried off all their goods, their women, and their children, rather than despair, at the prospect of his men stoning him to death, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Not trusting your own wits. Not relying upon your own resources. But casting all your cares upon him who alone can deliver you out of your dire straits. Well, how do you do so? How do you go about strengthening yourself in the Lord? Well, I hope what is most obvious to you is Participation in corporate worship. Utilizing the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, your prayer life. I would also encourage you to find a Jonathan in your life. Do you have somebody who can encourage you to help strengthen your hand in the Lord when you're beginning to lose your grip? But sometimes when you are alone and discouraged. Are you grounded enough in the gospel to preach the gospel to yourself? To challenge yourself, to confront yourself, to combat the lies and the voices of the enemy that seek to beat you down and keep you discouraged. You see, for the follower of Christ, each and every one of us must learn the practice of regularly acknowledging our own weakness. One of the uh, fundamental tenets of the gospel is that we must acknowledge our helplessness and our weakness. If we are to find true strength in the Lord, you know, it's not just drug and alcohol addicts who must first admit that they are helpless to overcome their sinful addiction. It is everyday run-of-the-mill Christians who must regularly humble ourselves, to tear down our altars to self and other false gods. Of stop imagining ourselves so great and important and embrace a Savior who is truly strong and gracious. Well, secondly, from our text, we want to address this ancient foe. Who is Satan? And what are these spiritual forces of evil that Paul refers to in verses 11 and 12? Well, as I read earlier in our call to worship, in the revelation from the Apostle John, he is the ancient serpent of old. Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. He is the deceiver. He is literally the accuser of God's elect. Peter refers to him as a roaring lion, seeking those to, de to devour 
ever watched those wildlife videos, the, the keen narrator will point out that the predator, the lion or the cheetah, as they follow the herd, goes after the straggler. He doesn't take on the strong. He doesn't go after the pack. He goes after the weak and the lame because it's easy prey. Likewise, Satan is a coward. And he goes after the weak and the loner and the straggler. And so a fundamental part of following Christ is to stay with the herd. It's to be in fellowship with other believers to find strength in numbers to help fight this foe. We do know that Satan is very powerful. We do know that he has great wrath. For his days are numbered and he is determined to take as many into the pit of hell as he possibly can. But we need a perspective, a biblical perspective on who this enemy is. Martin Luther once famously referred to him as God's devil. We need to be reminded that the devil is on a leash. And we see this clearly illustrated in the story of Job, where Satan has to get permission from God before he is able to afflict this faithful man. Friends, Satan cannot afflict you any farther than God is willing to let him go. And your father is good. And he knows what is best. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, Scripture says. And yet, he will test you. And he will allow you to be tempted, as we saw, as we see in David's life, where later in his life it says in one portion of Scripture that God tested David, and it says in another portion of Scripture that God allowed Satan to tempt him. And David initiated a census of all the fighting men, something that was repugnant in the sight of God and was a demonstration of a lack of faith that brought great sorrow and pain and affliction upon God's people. Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Our Savior knows every trick and every scheme of the evil one. You can trust him. Cling to him who is our wonderful counselor and mighty God. The one who was tempted. The one who overcame temptation. And even as you suffer temptation and feel oppressed, cling to Christ that you may resist him. And scripture says he will flee from you. So what is Paul referring to? When he speaks of various rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, I think it's helpful to go to the letter of John where he simplifies our opposition, describing it as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is obviously our fallen human nature, our corrupt desires that are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And I believe Scripture would inform us that the world and the devil form a kind of conspiracy against God and his people. Evil, wicked society. 
made up of individuals and organizations and corrupt governments, are aligned in opposition against God and his kingdom. The Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 illustrates, well, the the determination of sinners to be independent from God, to pursue their own ways and their own glory. So how do we understand these things? Well, six years ago, we had a woman in our church who was suffering a, a, a barrage of bizarre occurrences within her home. She was a single woman, the former wife of a pastor who lived alone. She was employed by Lancaster General Hospital. And while working there, she encountered some employees who were professed Satan worshipers. Well, somehow she crossed them, though had done really nothing wrong, and they gave her a veiled threat. And from that time, she was experiencing various disturbing phenomena. There was evidence of occult activity right outside her house, the blood of animals. And she was suffering bad dreams, hearing noises and had this very conscious sense of evil presence in her home. I don't recall whether or not she filed a police report, but she called upon the elders of our church to pray. And I took a few elders over to her house and a a few members of her home fellowship group, and we just met in her living room for about half an hour to an hour. We talked, we read scripture, and we prayed. And we specifically asked for God's protection in the casting out of the presence of evil. And this is a woman who would not call herself charismatic. She had a Baptist background, but she was experiencing real spiritual assault. And to her great relief and ours, from that time on, she professed no more experience of dreams, of noises, and even that presence. And uh, I believe it was uh, within the next year, she actually was transferred with a job transfer down south, and I trust that she is doing well with the Lord. There are a lot of things we don't know, but one thing I do know is that the Lord our God is strong, and he calls us to pray and trust him even with things that we can't control and the things that we don't understand. Perhaps very few of us will ever have any encounters with the occult, or have any reason to believe that evil forces are present and active in your life. And yet, we know that there is a great battle. And you and I are called to vigilant prayer. I would say that my wife and I, on a number of occasions, have experienced a a misunderstanding. And my wife will say something, or I'll do something, or I'll misinterpret something, and we get in one of those tangles that married people or people in close relationship get into. And all of our efforts to try to resolve it prove futile. And we just grow more frustrated and more confused. And this could go on for minutes. Sometimes this can go on for hours. And finally it would occur to me that there is nothing rational about our problem. There, there is no logical explanation for the tiff that we're in other than spiritual attack. And I will simply go to my wife and say, honey, we need to pray. 
because we are suffering a kind of spiritual assault here that is beyond you and I. And so we will stop what we're doing and we will pray. And we will go to our Father, our wonderful Counselor, who in the light of the cross, in the light of the redemption that we have in Christ, it puts our troubles in perspective, enables us to humble ourselves, enables us to repent, enables us to reconcile and resolve whatever the issue was, which I can't even think of a specific example at this time. You know, I think that Christians need to be more aware that there is spiritual assault going on all the time. Seeking to wreak havoc in husband and wife relationships. In relationships between parent and child. Between employer and employee. Between renter and landlord. Between neighbors, between brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you aware that you're under assault? And are you willing to be vigilant, to humble yourself and pray and go to people to resolve conflict that, where Scripture says, do not give the devil a foothold to tear up your relationships against the will of God? Well, thirdly, How do we make a stand? To stand firm in battle, it says, by taking up the whole armor of God. And I'd like to briefly touch upon this theme of covering in the Bible. We find Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis naked and exposed, covered with shame. And God covers their shame with the skin of animals. We find Israel vulnerable in Egypt and about to suffer the wrath of God's destroying angel at the Passover when God instructs his people to take the blood of the lamb and cover the doorframe of their home to shield them from the wrath to come. A clear foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us, that protects us, that shields us from God's almighty wrath. We have protection and we have armor that God provides for us. I played the game of football for 10 years, and I never missed a game due to an injury because I was given pads. I was given armor, and I was taught how to use it. I played the game of lacrosse for two years in high school. I missed a third of a season with an injury to my thigh from an opposing player's knee because that part of my body was not covered with protective padding. We need protection. We need covering. And we must be confident to stand firm when God has properly covered and protected us. The image here of standing firm reminds me of one of David's mighty men standing in a field, defending it against the oncoming hordes of the Philistines. And we need the right armor. Like David, who was offered the armor of Saul but rejected it because it did not fit him. And it hindered his movements. And it also would make him appear as Saul going in his name. David rather went in his own weakness, exposing himself, but went in God's mighty name. And there David went fully equipped with the invisible armor of God to boldly confront the arrogant, uncircumcised Philistine giant, threatening to cut off his head and to feed the bodies of his army to the birds and the beast, that they might know that there is a God in Israel. 
when we go in God's armor, when we stand for his honor and glory, we receive his protection, his vindication, and his victory. So how do we stand firm? Well, one is to recognize the types of assault that we will likely receive from our enemy. I find it interesting how in the book of Revelation, there's at least two chief themes, two chief images that help us understand the type of opposition that we receive from the enemy. One is the picture of the beast who oppresses and devours and destroys God's people. And that's a picture of the history of the church being persecuted by powerful enemies and governments and armies. And it's still true in many parts of the world today. But there's an alternative image in the book of Revelation, the image of a prostitute. The woman Jezebel, like Potiphar's wife, whose aim is to seduce God's people rather than oppress them like the women of Moab who caused Israelite, the Israelite men to compromise their faith and integrity. I would argue that in our Western secular society, we are more prone to seduction by being lured away by compromise into the flood of dissipation that we find around us. The Lord is calling us to stand firm, to put on the full armor of God to resist not only oppression, but also to stand firm against seduction and compromise in a society that is very confused and even angry that we do not participate with them in their immorality. Our armor helps us to be aware of the schemes and deceptions of the enemy. It helps us to see through false advertising. It helps us to recognize the false idols of our age. It helps us to resist the false gods of pleasure and false securities and material things and a living for self and self-expression and to live rather for the glory of God revealed in Christ. And lastly, I believe standing firm means that you do not stand alone that you stand in the company of others, remembering that there is great strength in numbers. In one of my favorite films, the Academy-winning movie Gladiator, a Roman general named Maximus is betrayed, sold into slavery, and finds himself serving as a gladiator in the ancient Colosseum in Rome. And there, with a small band of fellow gladiators, they are in the middle of the arena with the task of reenacting one of the great battles of Rome, serving as the enemies of Rome who were conquered and vanquished by the Roman army. And as they anticipate their peril, the general Maximus asks his fellow gladiators, Has anyone here served in the army? They only offer back blank stares. They have no idea what he's talking about. And so Maximus quickly explains that their common task is to stay together. No matter what happens, if they scatter, they will be cut down one by one. But if they stay together, they at least have a fighting chance against whatever comes out of those gates. And sure enough, the gate opens 
And out comes Roman chariots with spearmen and bowmen, and the crowds are roaring, ready for an onslaught. But the crowd's mood shifts to their utter amazement how this small band of gladiators fight and resist and force those chariots to come closer and closer and take more risk until they are toppled. And they wisely turn the enemy's strength against them. And so Maximus and his men rewrite history, the defeat of Rome. Christianity rewrites history. Christianity topples the enemy. A small band of followers of Christ overthrew an entire empire not by their own might, not by their own wisdom, not by their own power, not by their own resources, but by clinging together and holding fast to their conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. Put on his armor. Take your stand and not be intimidated by the foe. For our victorious Lord is strong. He will win the battle. And he will raise us up in glory on that great and final day. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our great and victorious King, we praise you that you have won the battle. And we long for that day where victory will be complete, that the enemy will be vanquished and cast out of your sight forever and ever. And we will reign with him who is our victorious King. Strengthen us. May we learn to be strong in you in the might of your power to bring you much praise, glory, and honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.